You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Thank you for joining us on Easy's Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter in South Florida and the people and organizations that are making a difference. Throughout the month, we've talked a lot about disparities in access to healthcare services, and I and several of my coworkers had a chance to experience firsthand how this impacts our own friends and neighbors this past week on National Pink Day for Summer Breast Cancer Awareness. The Women's Breast and Heart Initiative brought two mobile mammography vans to Fresco Imas in Hialeah to make no-cost mammograms available to women who would otherwise not be able to get their screenings. For any number of reasons, some with no health insurance, some with no transportation, some who can't take time off work. Whatever the reason, we know that early detection is the key to survival, and when a woman can't get her annual screening, this can result in breast cancer being detected at a later stage, and that results in more difficult treatment protocols and higher mortality rates. I met women who were able to get their very first mammogram ever because of the Women's Breast and Heart Initiative's community outreach. I met one woman who has gotten her annual mammogram every year for 17 years because of their outreach. I met another woman who didn't have an appointment. She waited nearly two hours hoping for a cancellation because it's the only way she could get checked. And my kudos to our own Corby Ray, who sacrificed her own appointment so this woman could get screened. Now, we know these challenges exist in every aspect of healthcare, and with South Florida's diverse population, with many people at higher risk for certain kinds of cancers or diabetes, heart disease, and more, it continues to be critical that we have organizations that go out of their way to make healthcare accessible to all. Fortunately, we do have community health centers, and they offer both free and sliding scale health care. One of these is Miami Beach Community Healthcare Center, and it is my pleasure to welcome the Senior Medical Director and Chief Healthcare Officer, Dr. Johan Torres. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, so Miami Beach Community Health Center is a health center program grantee deemed a public health service employee. What does that mean and how does that make you different from other doctor's offices? So Miami Beach Community Health Center, which we call MBCHC, is one of approximately 1,400 federally qualified community health centers around the country. These are medical centers that offer their services to local communities and beyond the local communities, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. So we receive grants from various entities, including the federal government itself, state and local governments, and other special programs, for example, the Ryan White Program for HIV and AIDS treatment. Traditionally, these centers have been meant to serve those who are uninsured or underinsured. We offer services for those, those patients based on their income, whatever that is, and on a sliding scale fee for anybody who has little or no insurance. Now, we also accept other insurances as well. So public insurance such as Medicaid or Medicare, 
essentially all all types of Medicaid and Medicare within Florida. And currently, we're taking all types of insurance that are private insurance as well. So whether you get your insurance from your employer or from the Affordable Care Act on your own, or other private entities will accept all those patients. It's about, in 2019, it was about a one-third, one-third, one-third mix. So about a third of the patients were uninsured, a third of the patients were through public insurance, and a third were either Affordable Care Act or underinsured. So pretty much you're open to everybody. The world can come to you. (laughs) Exactly. The world can come to us. And even though we are located in Miami Beach, we will take patients from anywhere. Okay. You have a huge range of services. You cover just about every kind of health issue that someone might have. Can you give us an overview of all the different services provided? Of course. So as a federally qualified community health center, or FQHC, our mandate is to provide primary care. So that includes, traditionally includes things like adult medicine. So if you're looking for an internist or a family medicine doctor or a GP, for example, for an adult patient, uh, we offer pediatrics obstetrics and gynecology, and then also, as far as the federal government is concerned, behavioral health is all within the umbrella of primary care. So we provide for our patients general health needs and can manage overall health concerns from before birth all the way to the end of life. And we do this for the individual as well as the whole family. We try to be what's called these days a medical home for our patients. And in fact, we're recognized by the National Committee on Quality Assurance as a patient-centered medical home. We offer some specialty services as well. So maybe this is what you're talking about with the broad range of services. We are one of the largest, if not the largest, HIV specialty care through Ryan White provider in Miami-Dade County. We have HIV prevention services, for example, something called PrEP or PEP, if you've heard of what that is. Those are prevention for HIV We offer hepatitis C treatment within our facilities. We have endocrinologists, so diabetes specialists, thyroid specialists, et cetera, in our facility, as well as eye care specialists, optometry and and ophthalmologists. We have podiatry as well. Our behavioral health group offers counseling, substance use counseling. We offer medication-assisted therapy for opioid use disorder, and we also have dentists in-house. Did you have to withhold services because of the pandemic? Were people coming in for different types of services? That's a great question. And uh, the answer to both is yes and yes. So in the very beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of health centers, we started closing down for what's called non-essential care. So things like regular checkups or, you know, um, just regular follow-ups. We started trying to reschedule those patients. As the pandemic has evolved, we've started to offer other types of services that we didn't before, for example, telehealth. So patients don't even have to come into our center to be able to receive a consultation with a provider. We still recognize that even as governments are opening their states and their local municipalities to different services um, that were all closed before, still some of our patients are um, not comfortable coming in in person. So again, we, we encourage the use of telehealth for that. Okay. We always have offered delivery from our pharmacy. Uh, we encourage this even more. One of the side effects that's come up of the pandemic and quarantining and people losing their jobs is an increase in substance abuse, domestic violence. There are more suicides. People are having a very difficult time coping. You offer behavior health treatment at MBCHC. Have you had an increase in calls for mental health services? 
Yes, I think so. In fact, for my own patients that I treat, a lot of them who normally do not have mental health issues have reported some severe anxiety due to the whole pandemic. We're very lucky, as you said, to have behavioral health services at our clinic. Um, The behavioral health center in the particular location where I work is literally footsteps from the clinical area where I see patients, and I've been able to walk them over, have someone walk them over to be seen immediately once that's identified in a clinical visit. It's hard to say if we have an increase in phone calls because a lot of our patients, as you can imagine, don't feel comfortable disclosing that, although they will make appointments with their providers, their primary care providers, or even with the behavioral health department directly through our phone calls. We have seen an increase in behavioral health telemedicine visits since the start of the pandemic. One of the things that I really loved on your website where it talks about the behavioral health is there's frequently asked questions, and one of them is, Am I crazy if I go to someone for behavioral health assistance? And of course, the answer is no. No. Um, so, what you and, right. and you have the you've got psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, nurse practitioners. What kind of therapies do the doctors and practitioners provide? So we provide some, our psychiatrist is there part time. So we provide some limited therapy, medical therapy for various mental health disorders, not just related to COVID. Our biggest practice is with the clinical psychologists and our licensed practicing mental health workers. And they provide counseling for a wide variety of issues, including anxiety, including domestic violence, substance abuse services. They provide mental health therapy for different uh, kinds of mental health disorders. And they offer some limited like social work type uh, services for our mental health clients. Are there some general recommendations to help people who are finding it difficult to cope? Yes, there's actually several. So I consulted with our chief of behavioral health, who's a clinical psychologist, and she pointed me towards something called the National Alliance on Mental Illness. That's the one that we use for our patients. The biggest recommendations across all sources, and I looked at several before our radio show today, is the following five recommendations. So number one, Manage how you consume information. That's very important, especially when people are stuck at home. They're watching the TV constantly uh, for all this information. As we all know, it's like a fire hose of a lot of times bad news. Um, Stick to reliable sources. Try to limit the news that you receive from social media because a lot of times it's, it's inaccurate. And then a great recommendation here is set limits. So don't spend all day watching news or sitting on Facebook or, or Twitter. Um, maybe set a couple, you know, maybe an hour or two hours every day. Some other recommendations they say are to follow some sort of daily routine. In, in the beginning, working from home, you know, in my job, I, ha- I can't stop working. I have to, even if I'm quarantined, I have to do a lot of work. So I would log into the computer and I would forget to get dressed. <laughs> so I would, I would sit down in my, our, our office in my house is right next to the bedroom. So I'd stumble out of bed, get on the computer <laughs> and start. And back then, you know, the calls would start happening at seven in the morning. So I get on the computer, start working. Next thing I know, it's seven o'clock at night and I'm still in my sleep clothes. Um, I would never eat breakfast. So I would stop, you know, come straight in here, have maybe a cup of coffee and, and forget to eat the entire day. So, I, you know, the first week or two, I, I felt like so dirty and gross at the end of the day. <laughs> this is <laughs> so <I> realized, familiar. <laughs> right? And I realized you really have to 
act as if you're going to work, as, you, as if you're doing your normal thing. So I make sure I take a shower every morning. I make sure I have a full breakfast every morning. I make sure I get dressed. I'll admit to everybody, I hope this is not too much, that I don't like wearing shoes. So I don't wear shoes when I'm seeing <laughs> patients, even from my home. Right. But I do put on a nice dress shirt. I do put on some um, pants. And, and, and I see patients just in those shoes. They don't see my feet when I'm doing a medical consultations. Right. So that's my quick thing for, for following day. And I'm sure they're then, thinking, thank goodness you're not seeing them either. <laughs> right. Oh, I've had some televisits. Some of the first ones have been in patients' bed. Like, you know, oh they gosh. don't even get out of bed. And the very first time this happened, the patient wanted to show me his uh, his toe because he had some gout. And he pulls out his, his foot from under the covers. I'm like, are you in bed? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes, yes, yes. I was like, okay, that's fine, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> various various states of undress, that's another thing that we see with televisits. And, yeah. You know, it's it's funny, but it's great actually. The te- I enjoy the television because you get an idea of what's going on in the patient's house, yes. which you don't normally see. Yeah, and you can get them to weigh themselves, which they don't normally like to do. So oh, yeah. on their own scale, so it's kind of nice. How can someone make an appointment? It's very easy. Um, you can call our main appointment line, which is 305-538-8835. That's the main number of the clinic. On our website, you can also find that number, and you can also find a number if you want to have a telehealth visit, uh, if you're already one of our patients, and you want to have a televisit, there's a special number that's on that there too. But if you've never been um, one of our patients, I would call the 305-538-8835 number. Okay, and the website is mbchc.org for Miami that's Beach right. Community Health Center. You can't accept walk-ins right now, can you? Absolutely. We have never not taken walk-ins. We are currently um, seeing walk-ins in person only, but we're working on being able to do that through telemedicine. But we see physical walk-ins we always have and we always will. Okay. Now you have three different locations. That's right. So our oldest and original location is on um, Alton Road, Miami Beach, 710 Alton Road, right before where the causeway comes in. Um, Our second location is in uh, North Beach, so on an island called Normandy Isle. It's 1221 71st Street in that area. And then our largest and newest center is actually, even though we're called Miami Beach Community Health Center, our largest and newest center is in North Miami on Biscayne Boulevard at 11645 Biscayne Boulevard. That's where I see patients. We're very fortunate to have you in the community providing services to anyone who needs them. It's the Miami Beach Community Health Center. The website again is mbchc.org. Dr. Johan Torres, Senior Medical Director, Chief Medical Officer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And finally, June is Men's Health Awareness Month, and prostate cancer is the most prevalent cancer in men. So I want to welcome Dr. Jonathan Silberstein, Chief of Urologic Oncology at Memorial Health System. Thank you for being with us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. What is your specific role as the Chief of Uro-Oncology at MHS? Um, that's a great question. So we are building a full oncology program across all of our hospitals that allows patients with urologic issues, specifically urologic oncologic issues, to receive care throughout our system. And it's my goal to make sure that regardless of what hospital, emergency room, clinic a patient walks into, has the name memorial atop it, you will get excellent urologic care. What does urologic care include? There are several different body parts that can get cancer within that 
broad area? Yeah, so great questions. Urologists are the plumbers of the body. So anything that touches water, or in this case, urine, urologists are in charge of. So we take care of the kidneys and kidney cancer. We take care of the ureters, the small tubes that run from the kidney down to the bladder. We take care of the bladder. In men, we take care of the prostate. We take care of the urethra. And we also take care of the reproductive organs. So cancer specifically that we manage, urologic oncologists, are kidney cancer, bladder cancer, prostate cancer, testicular cancer, penile cancer, and adrenal cancer, which technically is uh, sort of between uh, urologists and general surgeons or endocrine surgeons. What is the prevalence of prostate cancer? Well, September is actually Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and it gets so little awareness that there was another month built in, not necessarily for prostate cancer awareness, but men's health awareness. Okay. And men have different health needs and concerns about a couple of issues than women. Certainly chief among them is prostate cancer. And prostate cancer is by far the most common cancer in men. About 200 to 250,000 new diagnoses of prostate cancer occur every year in the U.S. About 30,000 men die from prostate cancer every year in the U.S. And about one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in the U.S. over the course of their life. Now, for some particularly at-risk groups like Ashkenazi Jewish men or African-American men, those numbers may be significantly higher. African-American men are twice as likely to both be diagnosed with prostate cancer and die from prostate cancer. So African-American men, the numbers are closer to one in six rather than one in nine. The good news is there are more than three million survivors of prostate cancer alive in the U.S. right now. You know, we've talked a lot about breast cancer this month because of National Pink Day for Summer Breast Cancer Awareness. And I often kind of put the two together in my head. I think of them as being similar, if only because the tests for both seem to be the most dreaded, uh, uncomfortable, and people don't want to get them. Well, that's actually not true. There are tons of similarities between prostate cancer and breast cancer. Both are endocrine organs, meaning that they secrete fluids for slightly different purposes, but because they secrete fluids, those endocrine ducts have an increased risk of developing malignancy, and they're both hormonally responsive. So prostate cancer requires testosterone to grow and spread. The way a fire requires oxygen. Many breast cancers are estrogen sensitive. And so there are many, many parallels between the two cancers. But to actually screen and test for prostate cancer is so much easier than what women need to do to to screen or test for breast cancer, but still men don't do it. So why is it as soon as you mention prostate cancer tests, they freak out? Yeah. So first of all, men, uh, I think, have different roles in our society. Men are generally fixated on being healthy and being providers. And the idea of having an illness, any kind of illness, is, is very frightening for men as a general rule. But then if you throw in an illness that in some way is involved in his sexuality and his reproductive ability, that particularly makes men concerned, I believe. And that's part of the reason men are very squeamish about talking about this subject in particular. And then specifically what you're referring to is that men get screened for prostate cancer in two ways. 
the most important way to screen for prostate cancer by far is a simple blood test that involves nothing other than giving a tiny little bit of blood to LabCorp or any any place that you want, and they can give you your numbers. And those numbers tell you not only if you are at risk for having prostate cancer today, but can give us tremendous insight into a man's risk 10, 15, 25 years down the road of having prostate cancer. So the manual test is not necessarily yeah. relevant anymore. Well, so uh, thank you. Uh, the, the digital rectal exam, the DRE, if you will, the most feared part of a visit to any urologist is really, first of all, um, just so the ladies out there know, it is uh, nothing compared to a pap smear. It is not nearly as invasive uh, and takes just a few seconds, literally, where a man bends over and a doc puts a, a finger up his, his behind to evaluate the posterior aspect of the prostate and see if there are any lumps or bumps. Now, 95% of men who have prostate cancer have a normal rectal exam. So while it is easy, it is cheap, it has very little risk, and generally I tell men there are only two reasons not to get a rectal exam, either your doctor doesn't have fingers or you don't have an anus, um, it probably is not the most important test for screening for prostate cancer. And by far, the prostate-specific antigen, the PSA test, the blood test is by far the most important test. So how often should men be screened and at what age should they start? That's a fantastic and tremendously controversial question. Prostate cancer screening is intricately tied to treatment of prostate cancer. And many men with prostate cancer need no treatment at all, but many men do. And as a result of this controversy, at one point in time, the U.S. Preventative Task Force Services, the same organization who told women that they should stop screening with mammograms, told doctors that men should stop getting PSA screening. And when women went out and marched up and down in the streets saying, we want to be screened for breast cancer, please reconsider the data, think through things carefully, and the U.S. Preventative Task Force Services quickly changed their tune. And men all let out a sigh of relief and uh, didn't get out there and protest and didn't get out there and march. And as a result, even to this day, the subsequent to this, and th this was in 2014 and 2018, uh, they reviewed the data and changed their opinion and said that men should be screened for prostate cancer with this blood test, but it should involve a careful consideration of this test before men are screened. Now, the problem is twofold. One, uh, a lot of doctors got the message not to screen and didn't get the message years later to start screening again. And then the second part of it is that when they said that doctors should start screening again, they said that doctors should have a lengthy conversation with patients before beginning screening so that patients could understand the risks and benefits of screening. Now, I don't know how long you've spent with your primary care physician, but if I can say, uh, and believe me, I love primary care physicians, but if they have they a have hundred things that they need to take care of right. when they see a patient from your cholesterol to your heart to your whatever it is you went in there for the first place, your knee hurts, you got a bump on your eyeball. Um, they got to deal with all of this. And then they have to have a lengthy conversation with you about the risks and benefits of this screening test. It's a lot for them to do. 
what risk is there? I mean, it's either a blood test and there's no risk in getting your blood taken, or it's a manual test, and how is that a risk? Right. So the manual test is absolutely no risk. And the risk of getting your blood taken is twofold. One, if a man is found to have an elevated risk for prostate cancer, the next test, the subsequent test, is a prostate biopsy. Okay. And a prostate biopsy does have some risks associated with it. And about a third of the men who undergo prostate biopsies will be found to have prostate cancer. But of the more than a million men who have prostate biopsies every year in the U.S., about 600 to 700,000 of them are never found to have prostate cancer and undergo this test that has some risks associated with it and okay. no real benefit for those individuals. Okay. The second risk is if men are found to have prostate cancer, treatment for that prostate cancer only really benefits a subset of those men who have more aggressive prostate cancer or healthier men. And I'll explain that in a little bit more detail as we go forward. Yeah, well, because I understand that it's a very slow-growing cancer. So that's one of the reasons that they don't always treat, because there's sort of a let's wait, because nothing may happen while you're alive. So prostate cancer, like a lot of other cancers, is not one disease. It is a spectrum of diseases. Some men with prostate cancer have a very indolent, benign, slow-growing prostate cancer that may not need treatment at all. Some men with prostate cancer have very terrible, aggressive prostate cancers that need very aggressive treatment. And it's this lack of clarity amongst both physicians and the general public about that spectrum of diseases that leads a lot of people to conclude that either screening for prostate cancer is not important or treatment for prostate cancer is not important. And in some cases, it can be life-saving. And in other cases, it absolutely is not important. But how do you distinguish? Well, that's a great question. And there are multiple tools that we have to help us sort through that. So there are five main factors we use to sort through this. Uh, one of them is that manual exam that you described, the digital rectal exam. Another one is that PSA test, which tells us not only whether a man is at risk for prostate cancer, but how potentially deadly that prostate cancer is. But the most important ways to determine what type of prostate cancer an individual has are the actual tissue from the biopsy allows us not only to determine whether that man has prostate cancer or not, but what is the course of that prostate cancer? So how bad is that prostate cancer? What is the risk from that prostate cancer? And those three factors that we find out from the prostate biopsy are the first is a scoring system. Every cancer, every cancer, brain cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer, all starts looking like the organ from which they derive. So kidney cancer looks just like normal kidney at the very beginning. And lung cancer starts looking just like normal lung tissue at the very beginning. And as that cancer becomes more aggressive or de-differentiates, the cells look less and less like the lung or the kidney or the breast and more like these pleomorphic cells that could belong anywhere in your body. And that's part of the way the cancer tricks your body into allowing it to grow in other parts of your body. 
So what happens with prostate cancer is we have a scoring system. And the more organized those cells appear, the more they appear like normal prostate tissue, the less likely that cancer is to spread to other parts of the body, and the less likely that prostate cancer is to kill someone. The more disorganized or de-differentiated that prostate cancer is, the more likely it is to spread to other parts of your body. And without getting too much details, we score the cancer from a six to a nine. The six is the best. The nine is the worst, technically a 10, but that's how we determine the risk of the cancer spreading that. And the biopsy also tells us how much cancer is in the prostate. That can be important to know. And we determine how much prostate cancer there is there in two different ways uh, based on those biopsy specimens. That gives us great insight into the potential risk of the cancer growing and spreading. Are there symptoms that someone can watch for to let them know that, yeah, they really should talk to a doctor? No. So that's a great question. As a man gets older, lots of men wind up having issues with their urination. And they do so for a couple of different reasons. But part of it may be that the prostate is getting larger. And many of these symptoms are waking up at night to pee or going to the bathroom more frequently. The stream isn't as strong as it once was. Most men with these symptoms do not have prostate cancer. But these are the exact symptoms that overlap with prostate cancer. So it's very, very difficult for us to distinguish these vague constellation of urinary symptoms that may or may not be associated with prostate cancer. And so the easiest way to think about it is that most men have no symptoms of prostate cancer specifically. And those symptoms can exist in a man who has deadly prostate cancer, not deadly prostate cancer, or no prostate cancer at all. And so there are very few, if any, symptoms for prostate cancer. And that's why getting this simple blood test is so, so, so important. Do you have to see a specialist to get a referral for that blood test, or can your primary care provider do that? Or does that depend on what your health care program is? No. You're, so primary care providers, 100% of the time, can get this simple screening PSA test. Now, the interpretation of that test may be a little bit different depending on what provider you see. The frequency with which you get that PSA test may be a little bit different depending on what provider you see. And the frequency with which you get that test, be it yearly or every five years, can differ depending on what practitioner you see. So let's say you're the practitioner. (laughs) Yeah, no, great question. So, So the best way to think about PSA, screening test for prostate cancer, is a little bit like hemoglobin A1C, a simple blood test that people can get to check for diabetes. And, you know, the truth is that this blood test tells us not only whether a man is at risk for having prostate cancer today, but can give us insight into that man's future. So um, most men should get a screening PSA test at the age of about 45. If that man has a strong family history of prostate cancer, if he's of African-American descent, uh, he may want to start at age 40. If at that age, the numbers are abnormal for a man his age, then he needs screening more frequently. 
if they're completely out of the normal range for a man that age, he needs to have a biopsy. If they're within the normal range for a man that age, doesn't need to be screened for another five years. Then we take it up to 50. Man gets screened again at the age of 50. He's got a normal number for a 50-year-old man. Probably doesn't need to be screened for another five years. If he's found to have an abnormal number, number that's higher than the median that most men, but not so high that we're highly concerned about him, he doesn't need to have a biopsy right away. He just needs to be screened more aggressive. So for that type of man, I would recommend that he get yearly PSA screening. So how often a man gets screened depends on what the numbers show. If someone wants more information about prostate cancer, about how you, Dr. Silberstein, handle prostate cancer, should they just go to the Memorial Health website and look up your name? Yeah, that's by far the best way to get that info. Go to the mhs.net website and look up Silberstein. Uh, I guarantee you I'm the only one in the system. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that's Silberstein uh, with a B, not a V. Uh, be that's like right. In, right. Okay. Be like in boy. I thanks thank so you. much for having me. Thank you. I it really appreciate pleasure. it. And thanks for giving me this opportunity to let men know about this important topic. Thank you for what you do and for saving lives. If you have questions about today's program or would like to suggest a topic, you can email me at ellen at easy93.com. Join us again next Sunday for a new edition of Easy's Community Focus. We start at 6.50. Thanks for listening. Remember, it's easy to get checked. Have a great day. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.